This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by ECJ Contacts. So, uh, good evening, good morning, good day, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to another live stream from us at hcj.tax. And today we have an exciting topic, i.e. Pillar 2. And to speak authoritatively on it, we have Robert Kiggins and Mikhail Charles. So, um, Robert, why, why not start with you? You have the ability to share screen if you need to. Otherwise, over to you. So, um, yeah, I was saying Darren knows me quite well, including when I'm going to muff uh, <laughs> being muted. Um, but my name is Robert Kiggins. Bob Kiggins is fine. Uh, I'm a tax lawyer based in uh, New York City uh, and uh, do a lot of cross-border. And uh, my particular interest of late has been both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. I know we're not here to talk about Pillar 1 today, so let me try to address just some, some high, high, high level stuff uh, on Pillar 2. Um, the first thing to know is that, uh, in theory, uh, the OECD is going to try to hammer out Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 and come to some sort of a definitive agreement next month, uh, or basically next month starts tomorrow. So. We'll be keeping an eye on what goes on with that. Um, in the meantime, there's a lot of still unresolved issues on Pillar 2. But Pillar 2, as you probably all know, the main thing of it is that it sets a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. Uh, that's going to be enforced by two types of rules uh, for each country that's a party to the deal. One is an income inclusion rule. This allows a company that's headquartered to levy a tax, uh, they call it a top-up tax, on that company's or their related company's low-taxed income uh, levied in countries, which is below the 15%. So that's the basic notion of it. Uh, the other part of it is an under-tax payment rule, and these things all have acronyms, <laughs> which I'm not going to, uh, UTPR, okay, I said it. Uh, that serves as a back drop to the income inclusion rule, the inclusion rule, which they call the IIR, by the way, and that would adjust the taxation of low tax corporate income that is not subject to tax under the IIR. One that may be of a little bit more, it's kind of a third prong, there's something called the subject to tax rule, uh, STTR, they, the OECD loves to give things uh, acronyms. And what that's designed to do really, I think, is to aid um, what is called, uh, the term it's used is, uh, hold on, hold on, uh, developing countries. Uh, and how does it aid developing countries? Well, commonly what happened in the past was to get deductions in high tax countries. Um, there would be payments made or deductible payments made to low tax countries. Uh, that was fine in a way for the, for the uh, company making the payments to get the deduction in the high tax country. It wasn't necessarily so good to get kind of a flow of, of payments into a country that really didn't charge any tax for them. Uh, and you can think of many countries in the Caribbean area which had, in which that had been the case. So now this is called STTR, Substitute Tax Rule. In that case, 
there's going to be a taxing right, which will be arranged bilaterally. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that works by treaty uh, between the high tax country uh, and the, the low tax country. And the notion of is that this STTR rate will be from 7.5% to 9%. So that's kind of a background on it. There are, there are things about scoping uh, that are of some interest, I think, especially in the Caribbean. Uh, pension funds or investment funds uh, are, are going to be excluded from this. So uh, hopefully a pension fund or investment, not, not from the STTR, by the way, but from the, uh, the notion of the 15% minimum. Uh, so uh, that could be, you know, people are saying, well, our, our company's going to, you know, move out of the Caymans or, or move out of BVI. And the answer to that may be no, <laughs> depending on the final form that these rules take. Um, for everybody else right now, these, these, these major rules that I introduced at the beginning, which are the income inclusion rule and the under tax payment rule that lead to the corporate minimum tax rate of 15%, will only apply to larger companies. They use the term MNEs, multinational uh, enterprises that meet a threshold, uh, which is an annual turnover of 750 million euros. Uh, a year or more. So, so that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, those are probably the major things. I don't want to go on and on about it. It's quite detailed. Um, there is some concern, <laughs> as always, unfortunately, when it comes to international, uh, the U.S. doesn't always, you know, go along with everybody else. So there certainly are concerns about in the rest of the world about some of what might be going on here in terms of our guilty uh, tax rate, which is a whole separate tax that the United States imposes uh, on income uh, of foreign subsidiaries, essentially, uh, of, of U.S. companies. And uh, it's people are a little concerned if this guilty rule is going to live peaceably or not with some of what's going on, not only with Pillar 1, but more so with Pillar 2. So uh, there's a lot of consideration that needs to be given to that area, I think, and certainly some concerns about it. Um, again, speaking to the U.S. side of it, um, there's a 15% global minimum uh, that, uh, and the thinking is it might put the U.S. in a better position than low-tax peers like Ireland. Uh, if, <laughs> here's the if, right now uh, they're proposing lifting the corporate, the domestic corporate rate here from 21% to 28%. That's recently come down, I think to 26.5. So there's a lot of, you know, US odd man out, which you're probably all used to by now, if, if you've dealt with the US uh, to any extent. Um, certainly carve outs and exceptions are gonna probably make or break anything on pillar, pillar two, uh, China, is always a player that can make some noise. They're seeking to exempt some uh, favored sectors from the global minimum tax. I don't know what will or won't happen with that. Uh, the UK is seeking exemptions for itself for financial services, but that one's kind of a head scratcher because I sort of thought that financial services were excluded. So I don't quite know what that's all about. The other thing to keep in mind is this, is that agreement, let's, let's say that the OECD does come to an agreement next month on pillar two. Well, that's nice, but it doesn't equal implementation. Uh, it's nowhere near it because each one of these countries 
uh, that's involved in what they call the uh, what do they call it? the inclusive framework, which is something like, ooh, let's call it 134, 140 countries. Um, we'll have to adopt this as well, not just as a matter of their administrators uh, agreeing to like treasury in the US, we know Janet Yellen is saying, stop the race to the bottom. Nonetheless, that has to go through Congress. And right now, again, I'm speaking to the US, we have a very much divided Congress, as you probably all know, uh, with, uh, yeah, the House uh, right now is more or less Democrat controlled, but even the Democrats are, are infighting a little bit among themselves. And then when you get to the Senate, we have a 50-50 split. Uh, now we can pass some legislation here on what's called revenue reconciliation with a 50-50 vote. And then the tie at that point gets to be made by the vice president of the United States, who was of course, Camilla Harris. And she would probably, being a Democrat, she'd probably be expected to vote uh, for the Democrats. Uh, but it doesn't take too many defections to <laughs> all of a sudden it's 48 Democrats and you know 50 Republicans, because I think the Republicans are gonna vote as a block and maybe 52 Democrats. I thought it would be interesting for all of you though to kind of, I looked at the list of the, uh, the countries that had joined the statement on the two pillar solution. And it is indeed most of the Caribbean. So we got the Bahamas signing on, at least you know administratively. Uh, we've got Bermuda, we've got the BBI, we've got Cayman, we've got Curacao, we've got Dominica, we've got the Dominican Republic, we've got Grenada, we've got Haiti, we've got Jamaica, we've got St. Kitts and Nevis, we've got uh, St. Lucia, and last but not least, of course, they're in Trinidad and Tobago. So, and that may not be the last one. I don't know if I caught every single country, you know, in the lesser and greater Antilles, but certainly uh, the early indications are that the Caribbean nations are on board with this thing. And, and I'll close with that. I certainly want to give other people a chance to, to make their comments. All right. So, so before we get to Mikhail and who, to, I guess, take a deeper dive into the whole Caribbean context, just so that we get the, you know, that big picture. So pillar two, the two principles, the global minimum tax, and then there's the, the right to tax as well, right? Yes. Uh, so, but just, you know, I, I guess this sometimes gets lost in the headlines. With the global minimum tax at 15%, there is a threshold. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Right. Until right. they change it, which they could do. But the right. latest I saw on it, was the, what was it, 700, what I tell you, 780 million euros. And I can't translate that to dollars because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not yeah, a currency okay. trader, but uh, the yeah. euro is probably all no tends to trade to pr uh, a premium to the dollar. And I, I don't know if you guys tend to think locally in terms of dollars right, in terms of euros. Here, of course, we think that the dollar should, should rule the roost, but I know that that's <laughs> not necessarily the way that people think in the rest of the world at all. And okay. now, you know, and, I have to worry too. I'm sorry, yeah, I don't want to go on there and hopefully that answers your question. Right, and, and the second one, the right to tax. Uh, could you, uh, you know, shine a bit more light on that exactly? The subject tax rule? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What it's meant to do is prevent base erosion payments uh, mm -hmm. out of high tax countries uh, mm -hmm. to related, par related parties in low tax right. countries, which probably includes a lot of the Caribbean that we were talking about. And the notion mm. now, and, and, and it is meant to benefit um, countries that are considered as uh, uh, developing uh, by giving them a little revenue, a little, a little absolute taxation rights 
on that revenue, but hitherto it was just flowing into their countries, mostly to benefit the parent, not to do a heck of a lot of good for the subsidiary, except to set up a, a pocketbook by which the high tax country parent, the parent in the high tax country could get a deduction. By the way, I do have a definition of developing countries and it's a little wonky, uh, but developing countries are defined as those with the gross uh, net income per capita uh, of, this is in USD, of $12,535 or less. Now those are 2019 figures, they may have been adjust for adjusted for inflation, but um, so obviously these are not wealthy uh, countries. Uh, that the design from the OEC is to is to give them some benefit rather than just yeah hey we're we're gonna we're gonna you know throw some uh, uh, money into your countries but you're not gonna tax it because you don't tax these things uh, like well, Cayman comes to mind right away of course where it's been zero I would I would imagine you guys would know better than me the DVI has been zero I know things are changing in the Caribbean and that and that I can't talk to and that's why I'm so pleased to have you know, our friends from the Caribbean who are much more uh, in touch with things that are going on down there than I am. Okay, uh, on that note, uh, Mikhail, over to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, I think, Robert, you, you covered most of the, the high level uh, things that I would have touched on. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, just, just, just thinking about the pillar two and its direct impact you're right to say that uh, well over 139 to 140 countries uh, signed up and there were some holdouts so for example my own native country st vincent and the grenadines would have held out um, barbados um, i think peru hungary and ireland which is a eu member state so watch that space because the EU needs to have its own um, internal um, discussions before making any definitive decisions. But maybe I just wanted to put a little spin on it. Um, so pillar two has, is the combination of uh, well over a decade of discussion uh, by the OECD and the G20. Um, similar to that, um, the EU COG would have, would have successfully implemented in the Caribbean um, economic substance requirements, usually across maybe six to seven um, <clears throat> areas, banking, insurance, etc. So even though there's a global minimum tax rate that's coming, I don't think it's anything that the Caribbean has not been prepared for uh, in the sense that at least the reporting infrastructure would be in place uh, by the time implementation takes place. And frankly, I don't see implementation happening before five to 10 years. Now, this is one of the reasons why. I think the greatest reason why is that under the common law, and when we speak about the Caribbean, we're talking about countries that practice English common law by virtue of our legislative history. Now, one of the rules within English common law, and it just came to me, is that of the revenue rule whereby the courts would not enforce a foreign tax uh, a foreign tax penalty um, with within its domestic space because that would be an affront to national sovereignty so you're quite right in that the implementation would require a raft of uh, a raft of amendments 
a raft of new legislation and a raft of repealing of old legislation. And quite frankly, given the rate of um, given the rate of law reform in our respective Caribbean countries, I don't see it happening between five to ten years. Now, some of the practical things that we um, that Darren and yourself would have identified would be the floor, and that floor is Euro seven hundred and fifty million, um, and it would apply directly to multinational enterprises. So immediately, my my defense attorney brain starts ticking. So that you know, by 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 exception, I would say, okay, if I'm not a multinational enterprise, and if I'm not meeting the floor, then do these rules actually apply to me? And I'm thinking that the space is shrinking for creative structures. Um, the space is definitely shrinking in respect of not only with the requirement of economic substance, but um, the, in uns popular onshore jurisdictions, what I've seen is that there's usually a, um, an application of their tax rules on a see-through basis. So, to, to my mind at least, one, the opportunities for creative structuring are being cut. Two, the infrastructure for reporting has increased in complexity and reach and scope. And three, the global minimum was introduced to combat very specific, very, very specific um, politically, uh, I don't want to get overly political, but some would say uh, some politically jaundiced um, view um, promulgated by very pro popular non-governmental organizations that there seems to be some sort of tax evasion. Um, and then, of course, they're saying that there's no longer a difference between tax avoidance on the one hand and tax evasion on the other hand. And of course, again, the Caribbean gets slated, even though our pace of law reform in respect of um, reporting is usually much better than um, those onshore countries. But that's a topic for another time. Uh, but all in all, I think that there could be a lot of pushback um, lit litigation-wise under the revenue rule. But, of course, with any sort of litigation, um, it is simply... With any sort of litigation, it is simply a, a numbers game or an argument game. So the revenue rule broadly says that you can't enforce um, a foreign tax liability under your domestic law. But let's not get confused. Where there's international information exchange, whether on an automatic basis or requested basis, or whether rules apply, dealing with mutual legal assistance and criminal and regulatory matters, then that sort of information can be used to help enforce. Now, the difficulty with the revenue rule is that as a common law rule, it could be abrogated or it could be changed or it could be removed by statute or international treaty. So for example, in the 2013 English Court of Appeal decision, um, in the Ben Nevis Court of Appeal decision, um, and that was an offshore company that sued um, the HM Revenue and Customs in England and Wales. Um, 
this revenue rule was raised to prevent a South African judgment of about £222 million from being um, recognized and enforced against two BVI companies. And Robert, you raised the BVI earlier. Uh, the BVI, I think, is about the fourth or fifth largest company in corporation or company domicile in the world. But the English courts recognized that there was a double taxation agreement between South Africa and the BVI. And because of that, they allowed the recognition and enforcement of, of that judgment. So even though there may be some space, that space is shrinking. And as Darren likes to say, at HTJ, we're going to watch that space and uh, hopefully, you know, help navigate uh, uh, through, through some rough, some pretty rough times that are coming up Caribbean wise. So I think that's it for me uh, on those points. Robert, thanks again for covering the high level points. <laughs> okay, so yes, I, I, I get that it'll be a while before we see full implementation, if, if it ever happens. But certainly the pressures on that in key jurisdictions, uh, it, it, it's not, you know, it, one would imagine that it will, it, it'll, you know, soon become a reality. Well, soon, relatively speaking. Now, I, and I get the threshold of uh, 750 million uh, euros, but given the law of unintended consequences, chances are just like we saw with FATCA and the automatic exchange of information, uh, smaller companies will invariably be impacted. How, how do you see that happening, if at all? Uh, Robert? You're on mute. Come on, unmute. There we go. My uh, mouse isn't obey obeying me today. So the mouse that roared. Anyway, forget that. Yeah, you know, Darren, it's so hard always to, to, to predict uh, the future on things. Um, so, so, so anything I could, you know, even begin to answer that would be, would be pretty speculative, uh, really. It's, it's certainly not a perfect situation. Um, there's certainly a lot of loopholes, uh, so to speak, uh, a lot of issues that need to be resolved. I mean, one of them, Mikhail raised, um, which is kind of, well, it's all nice, but I mean, are there even any dispute <laughs> mechanisms uh, for countries that do decide, hey, even though they've signed on, that they went, oh, no, we don't have to do IIR, we don't have to do UTPR, forget the STTR. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you work that stuff out? Uh, and face it, I mean, people are going, and, and, and rightfully so, uh, at least under our principles, no one, I don't know about international law, but a great principle of US law is that uh, no one should have to pay you know, more taxes than they're legally obliged to pay, which gives people quite a bit of room. Uh, and uh, my general observation after having done this for longer than I want to admit to, um, is that the more complicated a system is, uh, the more, you know, someone very clever is going to figure out, and it's not illegal, going to figure out a way to get the best possible result for, for his or her client. Um, 
And is that fair in the end? That's more the question. And it's probably not always fair in the end. Um, so, so what I'd like to see, and I haven't seen it yet, are any dispute uh, mechanisms. I don't know, Mikhail, if you have, uh, that, are, that are built into to Pillar 2. Uh, I think Pillar 1, which is not what we're talking about today, they had quite an elaborate uh, number of provisions, whether they work or not, uh, designed to deal with dispute resolution. And again, this, what do we do with these holdout countries? And Mikhail, you rightfully mentioned um, Ireland, and I learned something from you that uh, that some of the Caribbean nations are not signed on yet. Um, China is still. Let's face it, the U.S. is a wild card. <laughs> we just are, uh, and China's a wild card. And and what's the reason for that? I think if you're the dragon, you know you're big. I'm not trying to insult China because that's kind of a reference to China. You throw your weight around. Uh, and certainly the U.S., um, you know, hasn't been reluctant to do that all the time. Uh, and U.S. companies who are very well advised and, and frankly, who were given this, uh, this revenue threshold uh, are going to be in scope if Congress uh, passes this thing, which is a completely open question in my mind. Um, if they will, uh, I don't know if game it's the right word, because, again, they're, you're entitled to uh, to use the tax law as long as you as long as you're not evading tax, but you're allowed to avoid tax. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Mikhail, and help me out, uh, is that a principle that's pretty well respected, you know, um, in the countries you're used to dealing with? Yeah, it it it, it is. Um, and, and again, there's a a famous and I think it's a U.S. judgment that you cited, where the famous quote is that you're not you're not um, you don't have to pay more tax than than you do and i think from a very in and also from a very english point of view as well um, they would say you don't you don't owe the exchequer more than uh, than you should pay and that it's perfectly legitimate to arrange your affairs to pay the least amount of tax but however what, what we're seeing really is uh, a, a more some would say a liberated mentality or liberated um, politic that is is more or less saying pay your fair share now what that actually looks like in practice is why i think uh, we all have a bit uh, we all have a job <laughs> um, but i mean going back to your, your earlier point there robert about whether or not a dispute resolution mechanism has been built in i haven't seen one what what I think we, we're at or where we're at is that the inclusive framework is just that, a framework. And that framework um, is more or less, I, I think the, the roughest analogy that I can, I can make is simply a, a heads of terms of agreement. So we haven't even gotten into the nitty gritty of the quote unquote contractual document. Um, but what this document represents um, from a public international viewpoint is simply fascinating because it's very rare to have such consensus that has been built it's very very rare so i mean it's fascinating from a purely legal standpoint but again implementation and again that space whether that space will shrink 
stay the same or could even expand because of course there there are going to be um more creative structures that could that could that could come out i mean <clears throat> i mean i mean i don't want to necessarily give the game away but i mean usually mnes are organized as companies with share capital what is going to happen where there's a corporate structure without share capital so for example your llc um how is how i mean what are your accounting rules going to look like um is the pillar two going to change the nature or the format of your um of, of your balance sheet because if we're talking about inroads into the common law if we're talking about inroads into public international law does it mean that accounting is going to have to change i mean robert you really helpfully outlined um the the two well really four outshoots of pillar two the income inclusion rule the under tax payments rule the switchover rule and the subject to tax rule but if you really if we start digging into the nitty-gritty about the switchover rule that means that tax treaties which would have been um, negotiated we're going to have to start carving out of that and we're going to have to get rid of well under the english system it's dicey dicey's rule um on on where tax should be charged um because the switchover rule says what uh we're going to have to dig into your tax treaty we're going to have to permit the residents jurisdictions to switch from an exemption to a credit method where the profits attributable to a permanent establishment are derived from immovable property are subject to an effective rate below the minimum rate so lots of carving lots of carving out to do and i really pity the draftsmen uh in those 142 countries uh inclusive of all of the commonwealth caribbean or what they label us now as the the offshore havens uh, so I, I really am looking forward to not only the litigation but the actual mechanism by which um pillar two would be implemented but for now there's still some space yeah i absolutely agree Mikhail. and one thing i didn't mention uh and you got into it very nicely Mikhail, is that we're, we're going to be getting into bio at least here bilateral tax treaties the U u.s has, has never entered into uh the the mli and i don't see it happening uh in the near future given how hidebound in a way we've been about it. What I didn't say though, is that to the extent we have to start fiddling here with tax treaties, that is a really tall order because the basic rule is that changes in our tax treaties need to be approved by a two thirds vote of the Senate, <laughs> the Republican Senate. And I don't, you know, I don't wanna to be too political about it either, but uh, if it comes to that, uh, being needed especially as you kind of alluded to under the subject of tax rule i mean is it is it a pipe dream to think that that can that can happen here uh, i mean you know I'm, I'm asking the question in a skeptical tone but uh i mean what 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 do you think of that michael it just seems again you're raising a great point about these treaties and i mean geez i mean how how does this thing get implemented in a place but, like the US. 
Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm no U.S. lawyer, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I, I with, the, with the bicameral system that you guys have, um, I'm seeing a lot of difficulties, a lot of practical difficulties. It might be, it might be easier um, in the Caribbean. So we generally have just one house of parliament and usually the international agencies just draft the law, send it to us and we just pass it with some training, etc. Um, but more to the point, I mean, how is this a bread and butter matter? Um, you know, maybe that's me speaking uh, from a macro level, um, but there are greater things with greater priority. And if one looks at where the MNEs are, are, are really headquartered, it's not the Caribbean per se. It might be Cayman, it might be BVI. Um, St. Lucia tried setting up, um, try amending their offshore laws to attract um, head offices or headquarter offices, uh, but that hasn't really taken off because um, that, that came in about 2018 or 2019, I believe. And whoops, 2020, COVID. I mean, and I think that's the biggest elephant in the room, really. Um, would this pillar to survive post COVID? Because if you're talking about trying to restrict or trying to extract the maximum amount of tax um, from an MNE using the stick, why not use a carrot? MNEs ultimately rely on human capital and human engagement. Surely uh, a compassionate um, or some other form of inducement could be made for a greater share of taxes to be paid in respective onshore countries but maybe spec that that's me speculating but again you know we've seen we've seen things happen in the speed literally at the speed of light pre doing and I, I i you know knock on wood post covid um so to your point there could be some legislative impetus saying, you know what, these MEs are getting away. Let's pass everything lightning speed. Or there could be those of us who could encourage um, caution, um, saying, listen, not because it's COVID, there could be other ways to get more back. Yeah. And that, that's my two cents on that. That's, that's another great point, Mikhail. And, and, and I was a little remiss you reminded me and not mentioning something and that's that these globe rules which are again that's that's essentially the income inclusion rule the under tax payment rule they do give somewhat of a break for uh investment in in the uh, and let's call it the low tax country so if one of these mnes uh has some some serious tangible assets which typically, as we all well know, they don't, and serious and are seriously adding jobs to the local economy, then there's going to be a carve out, uh, at least the way things stand now, uh, of an amount of income from, from these minimum tax rules that's at least 5% year. And then after, God only knows if we'll get there, a transition period of five years of 7.5% of the carrying value, and again, this is an accounting concept, of tangible assets and payroll. 
So that's, you know, maybe that's getting a little bit to, to the point you're making about, uh, let's say, the somewhat exploitative nature, shall we say, uh, of some of these MNEs and just kind of, you know, what Janet Yellen called the race to the bottom. Um, but again, you know, sorry to, to just dash across quickly, but again, you know, I get excited because it, it, it sort of shows the joined up thinking of the international bodies. So they must be talking to each other because that carve out sounds eerily similar to the requirements under the economic substance um, for economic substance. So you got to have assets in the country. You got to have employees. You've got to show that those employees are paying local taxes. You've got to show substance. How you just how do you, how do you justify uh, on, pa on a pass through basis hundreds of millions of dollars, whether those be US, CHF, whatever you book your currency as? How do you justify that? You've got to show some tangible benefit um, to to the country. So you know, there, there's some joined up thinking there, but again, overall. Um, its impact is yet to be seen. Implementation. Yeah, and thanks for that too, because I'm, I'm glad you're on because I'm, I am vaguely aware of, I guess, what you would call these substance rules. Um, you know, that certain amounts of capital and workers and so on and so forth. Uh, is that pretty uniform throughout the Caribbean, Mikhail, or does that very much vary from uh, from one country to another? I, I'm most familiar, not that I know it in any kind of detail. Uh, but just I've had discussion with BVI attorneys who are telling that they're spending, you know, a heck of a lot of their time now uh, with compliance with these uh, with these uh, substantive economic presence rules. Are, are they extremely detailed, extremely, you know, difficult to comply with, extremely expensive just in terms of legal costs? Well, the, the, you, you've asked one question, but you've split it into three. <laughs> so I'll, answer, I'll, answer, I'll answer accordingly. So the first one, yes, they're extremely um, uniform um, um, throughout the throughout the Commonwealth Caribbean. So you usually find it allied. So for example, BVI, BVI, Cayman, Bermuda, they have similar, very very similar um, economic substance rules. And then it deviates further down the island chain. So you have the islands of the Eastern Caribbean. So for example, um, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis, Antigua and Barbuda, Commonwealth of Dominica, Anguilla, and of course, BVI. Uh, you find those islands, uh, with the exception of Grenada, because Grenada killed its offshore um, industry maybe two years ago, two, three years ago. Um, so you find those following a similar um, a similar tableau of about nine areas, banking, insurance, um, a few others um, that, that you have to report on. To your second question about the time and the cost, yes, it's timely and yes, it's costly because the sheer amount of paperwork and uh, going back to my earlier days uh, when I was a junior, uh, billable hours, but those billable hours still have to come out from something. They still have to come out from a company's operating capital. So yes, it's going to hit and hurt, and it has hit and hurt. And yeah, I think your third question was about um, complexity. Um, yes, it can get complex because there are various carve-outs for pure 
no equity holding companies, um, the sort, and then the type of activity, if you can show that if there's a percentage of local ownership again, which then adds another layer of complexity because the typical term is aliens. Um, so anybody who's not a, a, um, a citizen of the particular island, um, that could that shows up some very interesting questions as to the percentage of um, if, if you merely have 51% local ownership, does that satisfy the economic substance requirements, that sort of thing. So there's, 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 some, there's some interesting local complexities or local nuances to the economic substance um, point. And I think uh, maybe la my last point, I, I, I see Darren um, shaking his head there because we've recently been trying to engage uh, with, with, with some um, Cayman attorneys in respect of actually figuring out what applies and that is the overall issue because as especially in the tech space as the tech space grows and we see these fantastical amounts of fiat currency being generated by crypto that has the potential as to to lift a crypto company to a mne it does because 750 million euros i mean binance crashed what three three or four weeks ago and and wiped almost six percent of major trading um companies around the world that hits and that hurts so you know the share the share volume of what can happen with companies who are headquartered in the caribbean i i think requires careful advice mm. and careful locally tailored advice as well and I think this is this is this is why we we we're here, to sort of, you know, trim the bushes a little bit, and sort of you know see through the weeds, see a path, forge a path. So I mean, uh, you know, I, I I get I get excited. Sorry to to start elevator pitching, but I get excited when I see like different loopholes because you've you've got to catch it like a Venn diagram, you know, you've got to catch it like a Venn diagram. So there is there is space. Great. I have another one for you because, again, I don't get a chance to thank you, Darren, for giving me this opportunity to learn a lot more than I currently know about the Caribbean. But one thought that kind of occurs to me, and it's a little bit, I don't know which way, which way to put my arms, but uh, global warming and rising sea levels and, you know, wonky weather. Uh, how much you know how much of a concern is that at the government level as far as you can perceive uh throughout the caribbean uh you know how much are they like i, I don't imagine i'm not going to name names but i imagine the prior administration might not have been thought of too highly for some of its i'm referring to here uh its environmental policies and then if you have a sense of it uh how worried and i know a lot of times it can be a struggle just to get through the day uh if you know you're you're impoverished which i gather sadly you know there's a lot of it uh but but how how much concern you know at the at the level of the politicians and maybe not so much at the level of common man because just getting through the day can be a challenge but are you perceiving you know anything that's affecting government thinking or even thinking about among, among business leaders 
uh, as to, you know, so to speak, the, 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 I imagine most of the Caribbean islands are fairly low lying. I mean, I, I do know, <laughs> I know a little bit about uh, some of the islands are volcanic, so I imagine they can rise to pretty great heights, but any, any, anything like that going on, any influence of the global warming environmental concerns that you're seeing, Mikhail? Um, lots to unpack. Um, so I'll start with the, with, with the last points first. Um, Thank you. Sorry, I'm asking a lot of one. That's fine. Um, so for example, the vol volcanic concerns. So right now, um, off the coast of Spain is La Palma, which last erupted in 1972. But cast your mind back maybe six or seven months, my own island, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, had an er explosive eruption um in april of this year and about one-fifth of our population had to be evacuated from the north where the volcano is mm. uh, that has wiped off about let's say we conservative estimate 10 to 15 percent of gdp um and of course you know you get your grant funding you get your donations from overseas but really um that's not going to cut it you mm. know mm -hmm. That combined with COVID, where no tourists really are coming out, plus vaccine hesitancy, etc. So your bottom line is you need feet on the ground, boots on the ground, to 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 borrow an Americanism. You need well, it won't be boots on the ground. You need flip flops on the ground <laughs> um, to, really, to really start the the to really start the, the the tourism dollars moving. And I'll link this back to Pillar too shortly, um, and then coming back to your global warming um, or your climate change issues. Right now, there's COP26, some COP26 events happening in Italy. And, you know, we have a lot of young people going from the Caribbean into Italy to really discuss um, the very practical effects. So I'm under 35, but within my lifetime, I have seen an increasing intensity of storms. So every year, so let's say... Let's, let's invent a, a fictitious Caribbean country, A. And we make $100 US a year. Guaranteed, every year you're going to face a storm or some sort of weather event that's going to wipe out at least $50 of that $100 US that you make a year. Now, this then um, raises a question. Pillar 2 um basically is going to kill the concept of legitimate tax competition and taxation as we know is it's been historically a national competency and our concerns about setting tax rates now of course uh you know smaller caribbean countries lack the economic advantages of larger ones so for example the u.s could rely on its shale oil it's timber resources in the Midwest. It's gold in Arizona. And some other very, some, some other very nice, um, some, some very, very nice resources and, and um, industries that HTJ Tax advises on. Um, but when you look to try to compare that to the Caribbean, um, we have sun. We have sea, we have sand, agriculture, 
but most keenly financial services. And those financial services, I think since the 60s, uh, have been utilized as a tool of national sovereignty. Because really, where else are you going to be able to utilize the corporate structure to get a benefit onshore? That doesn't really happen. I mean, apart from Luxembourg um, and recently Ireland, and of course Switzerland. But Switzerland and Luxembourg have caved to DAC 6. So in the next five years, really you're going to start seeing that drift away. Hong Kong is under threat uh, from, from China. Although I think when China really asserts itself, it's going to see the benefit of having, um, of having a, a, a tax center um, within the Republic. But more to the point, I think there should be a carve out specific to those countries who can demonstrate. So those, those requirements on the economic substance, I think as well, they should add a limb um, to demonstrate that they're paying in the, those, those companies that are benefiting from the tax break are, are, are balancing it by paying into let's say a national climate funders or some are demonstrating some sort of um, contribution to national resiliency. So, you know, let's, let's see how best we can really compete and compete to the benefit of the quote unquote common man, but without ceding our sovereignty to the OECD and the G20. Sorry, just, and, and just to, to add to, to what you guys are saying, I, you know, to borrow metaphors and stuff, but uh, I don't mean to be insensitive, but it does seem to be a, a perfect storm to the extent that you have, it's not just pillar two, but you have economic substance, you have the principal purpose test, uh, you know, and, to, and especially principal purpose test, to what extent can one going forward and then transparency as well, because uh, some of those jurisdictions are being pushed in a direction of an open registry so you know which which for some people or for some uh structures that rely on uh, on privacy that that kind of plays against it so it just seems as if there's a confluence of factors that are putting pressure on on that caribbean offshore financial service sector and that play in favor of let's say nearshore like a, a, a Singapore uh, or onshore going, going back into to Europe or into the United States. So it seems as if their forces are for just, just driving it in, in that direction. Uh, am, am I being too conspiratorial or do you see that as well? I see it. Mm. I don't need it myself again. I'm getting there, Darren, you know, <laughs> on this. Um, so kind of, you know, this is a tough one, Mikhail, but it's like a maybe a one to end on and it may be an unanswerable one. Uh, on balance for the Caribbean, this is really, I'm like uh, Hannity and Combs here. Good, pillar one, pillar two, well, not pillar one, pillar two, good, pillar two, bad. If you had to say one or the other, I know that's that's almost a ridiculous way because things are to frame a question because things are very seldom binary. But more good than bad, more bad than good. Any any sense at this point for how it works out for the Caribbean? 
more bad than good. Uh, I think any any um inroads into a nation's sovereignty and a nation's ability to compete violates United Nations national order. We're all supposed to be equal, um, equal contributing members to the international order, and uh, you know, as humanity as it, you know, from since we crawled out of the primordial muck, we've had to compete um, in order to better ourselves. Uh, Cro-Magnon man became homo sapiens by competition and in order for evolution to continue um, evolution of finance evolution of um, just being better uh, and, and if it's not working you change it and you, life is continuous change and to try to impose a static system on um, fluid companies I think it's trying to catch water so more bad yeah. Yeah. Darren anything I know I know we're getting near time so I don't want to uh, you know I don't want to if you have something you want to add or ask or whatever um, of me or Mikhail I suppose uh, fire away mm, no I, I think you guys have done a fantastic job uh, at covering all, all the key concepts and and for those who may be watching uh, either live or the recordings in the future i think you give everyone uh lots to reflect on and lots of you know you know the questions to be answered and uh yeah yeah it, it is what it is and particularly the role of the u.s you know I have seen that in other quarters, there's doubt as to whether the US itself, it will influence, it would help pilot, but as to whether they would actually pass enabling legislation in the US, uh, unlikely, but you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, Robert, Mikael, thank you very much for your time. It's been an amazing exchange and I look forward to doing this again in not too distant future. Yeah, cheers, guys. Yes, and thanks for the opportunity, Mikhail. Th thank you so much for sharing. Really, I learned a lot. More. I got a lot more <laughs> given to me than I could than I could give back today. So, Darren, mm -hmm. thanks for the opportunity, and Mikhail, thank you for you know all of your insights on things that I really need to learn a lot more about than I currently know. And goodbye, everybody. And vice okay. versa. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tex. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tex. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.